Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Earthworthy is a social enterprise employing survivors of a garment factory in Bangladesh. Their makers are well paid and are able to then provide for their families in a dignified way. We also talk about Jess's journey to starting Earthworthy and her background in environmental advocacy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jess. So you are the founder of Earthworthy, which is a social enterprise that predominantly sells jute products and bags. So what led you to starting Earthworthy? Yeah, thanks, Lottie. It's great to be here. I actually lived and worked in Bangladesh back in 2014 and 2015. So I had the opportunity to go over with the Australian government and I had never thought about going to Bangladesh. I had had a previous work trip because I had been in the NGO sector or working in international development. And I was meant to go to Bangladesh, but I got stuck in Bangkok um, due to some political unrest in the country. So it wasn't somewhere that seemed overly accessible to me, but there was a really interesting role working in environmental advocacy in Bangladesh. So I took that role with the government and after working there, was really keen to do more. Amazing. So for our listeners who aren't really sure, what is environmental advocacy? (laughs) Great question. Well, advocacy, I guess, is just speaking up on behalf of other people or trying to raise a platform of issues. So I was trying to do that from an environmental perspective. So I was working with local Bangladeshis and local organizations who were also connected in with big organizations all the way up to the UN and just campaigning around issues particularly around clean water. So Bangladesh is a land of waterways and there's not a lot of regulation or enforced regulation, say, around the use of chemicals by industry and that can end up in waterways or heavy metals and things like that. So we were working around, yeah, primarily around clean water in Bangladesh. Gosh, that would have been so interesting. I feel like it's a bit like a needle in the haystack. It'd be so, there'd be so many things to tackle, but it'd be really difficult to know where to start. But what I really want to talk to you about is starting Earthworthy. So kind of you came back to Australia and then what happened? Yeah, so I actually came back to Australia pregnant with twins. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of, um, looking after two very small babies happened in the first couple of years. But I really saw the potential and opportunity in Bangladesh. It is or was one of the least developed countries in the world, one of the poorest countries in the world, but it's rapidly changing. Its economy is growing. And doing it at this time means they're also doing it with a lot of environmental awareness, which is pretty incredible. But Another thing that had happened in Australia back in 2018 is we saw major supermarkets ban single-use or supposedly ban single-use plastic bags. So I saw a real opportunity to enhance the profile of jute, which grows prolifically in Bangladesh. It's one of the most sustainable fibres in the planet, and I just didn't understand why we weren't using more of this product in Australia. So I chuffed back over to Bangladesh in 2019 and started just exploring how we could bring this incredible fibre to Australia. 
So talk to me a little bit more about jute because I feel like in Australia, cotton gets a lot of airtime and we're starting to see kind of hemp being spoken about and linen, of course, because of all of the fashion trends. But why jute? I know you just said that it grows fast, but enlighten me. (laughs) Yeah. So jute is actually known as the golden fiber of Bangladesh. So back in the day, it really was sort of a staple for the economy for the very reason that it grows fast. It uses very minimal pesticides. And because you've got sort of that three to six month cultivation period, you can turn over the material very quickly. It's absorbing lots of carbon and it amazingly leaves the soil more replenished after a harvest than um, before you plant it. So it's just one of these wonder fibers that we don't use a lot of. Most people would know it as coffee sacks or quite a coarse material such as hessian. So that's probably one of its drawbacks that it's not ideal for clothing or say bed linen because it is a bit rough, but it has plenty of other applications. Amazing. So you head off to Bangladesh. You're like, I'm going to bring jute to Australia. We've just banned single-use plastic bags at the checkouts. Let's do this. Then what led you to kind of creating an even more, like a bigger impact also from a social perspective? Yeah. So I have worked in the community sector and in international development overseas. So I was always conscious of having, how can we combine that social impact with that environmental impact? So the original concept for Earthworthy was actually to run a bit of a social enterprise in Australia, something similar to The Big Issue, which is a magazine that's sold on the street corner by people who are experience homelessness and they can keep half the sale price. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to do that with bags out the front of supermarkets, but make them jute so they're super sustainable and provide that sort of supplementary income for people or even social connection who might need it. That was just before COVID happened. So instead we thought, well, let's go down the e-commerce path because not many people are going to be doing face-to-face in the um, near future. So I actually, yeah, I had done my trip to Bangladesh just before all this happened and was just really fortunate to form some connections. Well, I already had some connections from living over there, but form some new connections. And I was connected with an amazing organization that was employing survivors from the Rana Plaza garment factory collapse. So from that point, we thought these are our people and we really want to work with them. And it was really exciting to know that just doing that bit more research rather than going to the bigger known factories that we could, yeah, have as many touch points as possible to achieve social and environmental impact. Amazing. And so to kind of refresh our listeners' minds who probably maybe they never even heard about the factory collapse, but can you talk a little bit about exactly kind of how that happened and the impact that it had? Yeah, it was pretty devastating. So it's actually 10 years this year since the disaster. It happened back in 2013. Basically, it was a seven or eight story garment factory in Savar, which is in the outer districts of the capital of Dhaka in Bangladesh. And people had been sent to work despite the actual building itself being unsafe. And that building collapsed and over a thousand people were killed on that day. Another, I think over 3,000, at least 2,500 were injured from that event. And obviously you've also got all the trauma and mental harm that comes from a tragedy like that as well and having to be pulled from the rubble and all the people that were involved in those retrieval and rescue exercises as well. So it was a huge wake-up call for particularly the fashion industry. There were some big brands that were making their clothing in that 
specific factory. So a good thing that came out of it is we did start to see a significant amount of change in the fashion industry. Yes, and I think you're right. And it's amazing to think that it was 10 years ago. I feel like I was reading the news about it just yesterday. But sadly, I think we think that modern slavery and sweatshops is something that is in the past when actual fact they are still existing and the fashion industry has the highest rates of modern slavery out of any industry. So I know that this is something that you are extremely passionate about. So how can our audience know that they are supporting a brand that isn't participating in modern slavery? can be very challenging. There's a lot of different brands out there. There's a lot of people sharing bits of information and maybe not the whole story or there's actually other there's lots of brands including ourselves doing the best we can and we even still find it difficult to follow our supply chains and make sure we're doing everything possible to avoid slavery or to ensure workers are being paid fairly and no one's being exploited so i appreciate it's challenging but there are still plenty of things we can do before i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Going overseas, I worked for an organization called Baptist World Aid, and they actually produced the ethical fashion guide. So if you do anything, just grab that guide. I think it's still in an app, or you can just search the ethical fashion guide, and that gives brands a rating. So you can try and choose brands that have an A or B rating because they're the brands that are doing the best they can in yeah, just understanding their supply chains, ensuring their workers are paid fairly. Other things you can do is just buy less. So I think we all get into this culture of getting used to fast fashion or keeping up with trends or I think particularly during COVID, just doing a bit of online shopping. And so just maybe putting something in the basket for a few days before you click send. I probably shouldn't say that as an e-commerce brand, but we want people to buy things intentionally and use them. So yeah, I think if we can just slow down a bit, be intentional about what we need and what we purchase, then that can go a huge way as well. And then looking, just doing that bit of extra research to understand where brands are making things, how they're being made and whether they're trying to do as much as they can to ensure that they're employing people fairly. No, I think it's great. And I think there's also at Fashion Revolution as well, who have the Who Made My Clothes campaign, which I think is also a really great one that kind of shows the behind the scenes of the producers and the manufacturers, because there is a lot of, I feel like a spotlight at the moment on Australian made garments and businesses, which is great. But when you're dealing with a textile or a fabric like jute that isn't grown in Australia, it does kind of, it's pretty much does need to be made overseas. So then it's like, well, okay, trusting the people that are really tracing that supply chain back, which is a lot easier when you're a smaller business from the fact that you don't have as many suppliers that you're working with, but you also don't have as much power because what you're ordering and you're spending with those organizations or businesses is so much smaller. They kind of go, it doesn't matter if you actually don't come with us. We don't need to provide you with this information. So I think it's kind of it swings both ways. If you're a big player, you have so many different 
things to trace back and the traceability gets really difficult, but you do have that purchasing power as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think with those bigger brands, we can expect to see those certifications and the just the rigor. They've got the resource to do that rigor and make sure they sort of follow through and research their supply chains. For smaller organizations like for myself, I physically go to the factories. I meet with the makers. We're able to sort of have that more intimate relationship because we are a smaller brand and working with a smaller manufacturer as well. And we were very intentional about that. So there's all different ways to go about it. And I appreciate it can be challenging as a shopper to know what's genuine and what might be a little bit of greenwashing. But I think just educating ourselves as well of what's have been happening around the world. We're so removed from our supply chains these days. We, there's so many steps between what we have in hand and how it's made or where it comes from to begin with. So if we can just understand that process a bit better, it might help us value what we have a bit more as well. Exactly. And I think we had um, someone on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Maddie, who was actually talking about kind of mending and making your own clothes. And she was saying, even if it's not the fabrics of that, like are the most sustainable in the market, at least making them is really teaching us the effort and the time and the care that can go into a garment so that we should really be giving it that all that we can to make it last for as long as possible. Absolutely. I could not agree with that more. And in saying that, I cannot even sew on a button. So I really appreciate my local um, person who I can drop my bits and pieces off to get things hemmed or buttons sewn back on or holes patched. But yeah, just if there's nothing wrong with our effort, it can be mended. Let's do that because we have sort of, and I'm prone to it as much as anyone else. We have become a bit of a throwaway culture. It's just too easy to do. And it's frustrating because sometimes it is cheaper even to purchase something again rather than fix it up. But I know I get a lot of satisfaction from just trying to maintain and look after what I have. Exactly. It's almost like a game seeing how long something can last. Now, (laughs) I just want to go back to your work in environmental advocacy, because I think we've got a lot of people that listen to this podcast who are potentially in a job that doesn't align with their ethics and their values, and they want to make that switch and that jump. How did you go about it? Because when you were working in environmental advocacy, sustainability wasn't as big of a thing as it is now. So you would have definitely been that kind of odd, I don't know, not the ugly duckling, but the odd duckling trying to kind of do something different. What is your advice for people who are looking to go down that career path? Yeah, I probably just did come in before. I don't think there was even a degree in sustainability back when I was at uni. I actually started in corporate. I had my undergrad is in business and I went into a grad position with a very large corporate and I lasted all of a year because I just wasn't finding fulfillment or value in that role. So I ended up taking quite a significant pay cut and going into the not-for-profit sector. But yeah, for, I guess from sort of a values and fulfillment perspective, it just was a really good move. I've dipped in and out. So I've gone up for profit. I've done volunteering. I've gone back to corporate. I've done government. So I really valued that diverse experience and I've been able to take those lessons and work in the sustainability and community development space in corporate as well as government. And I think it's just about like getting out there and networking, getting to know people at whatever level you are, whether it's as like, just take all those opportunities. But yeah, I think just 
meeting and connecting with people doing things like this is the most valuable way to work out where you can use your passions for good and um, yeah, realize those opportunities as well. Exactly. And I think that the, one of the kind of benefits now with the sustainability sector is the fact or sustainability industry is the fact that there are so many different facets to it now. It is so much bigger than it used to be. So you don't really need to be a sustainability professional. You can go into energy or you can go into clean water or fashion or whatever it is. But I think as well, when you're just starting out in your career, it doesn't hurt to get experience in those other sectors before you kind of make the I don't know the jump back into fashion if that's kind of what is your calling because I think they all have some really similar underlying values and like you just said you don't know who you're going to meet and you can really make some great connections that you'll be able to use in your future career as well. Yeah I totally agree and I think it's I've found more fulfillment from putting I guess my values and my passions ahead of a career path or sort of that idea of getting ahead and it's worked out fine. So if you have got that luxury, because I totally appreciate it's a luxury to sort of follow your passions and enjoy working that way and enjoy making a difference, then I would go for it. Definitely. I think there's, there is never a kind of a perfect time. I always get asked kind of, when was the perfect time for you to kind of go all in with sustainability? I'm going, there wasn't actually a perfect time. There was never this kind of perfect tipping point when I went, oh, you know what? I'm more financially secure now. I'm going to make the plunge. It was kind of like, okay, I'm going to take the plunge and then we're going to work backwards and hope that this works and hope that we um, float, not um, sink. So I think it's really great advice there. So I've got one final question for you, Jess, and that is what is one actionable thing that our audience can do tomorrow to help save our planet? Oof, tomorrow, I would Google Rhonda Plaza. It's been 10 years. Yeah, a decade has passed. I know there's some short documentaries on YouTube. There's, yeah, the fashion revolution. There's the ethical fashion guide. There's so many resources out there. And I think it's something that probably hasn't been on our radar, even for people that are in this space for quite a while. So, yeah, I would just educate yourself a bit more on the collapse, what it means, what's changed since in the, particularly the fashion industry. And yeah, I'm sure you will then be inspired by a plethora of ideas about what we can do as individuals to make things better. Amazing. I love that. And I think it is one of those things that's really easy and it's just about understanding more about what's happening and what's going on. So thank you so much for coming on today, Jess. Thanks, Lottie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.